Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the season premiere of Monitor Monday. Today is our special 60-minute live edition of Monitor Monday with some of healthcare's most respected subject matter experts. Look ahead to see what you can expect in 2021. As we come on the air this morning, the death toll from the coronavirus is now more than 374,000 lives, and the number of confirmed cases in the U.S. is now more than 22.5 million. We have much news to report this morning during this special 60-minute live edition of Monitor Monday. On today's program, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, William Dombey, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, Dr. John Fogel, David Glazer, Angela Phillips, Ed Roach, and Maureen Testoni. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Let me get right into the updates. First, last Thursday evening, Alex Azar announced on Twitter that he signed another 90-day extension to the public health emergency. So we're now good until about April 20th. That means all the waivers remain in place, including the need for a three-day inpatient admission to access Part A SNF benefits. And I'll again note that although the requirement is waived, SNFs are free to do what they want and they can refuse patients without a three-day inpatient stay and there's nothing you can do about it except move them to the bottom of your sniff list for eternity so they never get another referral from you. I'll note that the new discharge planning rules prohibit hospitals from designating post-acute providers as preferred, but there's no prohibition on designating any of them as your nemesis. Now, speaking of post-acute providers, last month CMS did something sneaky. Normally, when they put a propose a new program, they make a splashy announcement and everybody gets excited. With boring stuff like renewal of forms, they post it as an agency information collection notice that few people read. Well, they released one of these collection notices with a request for comment on a new prior approval program. They're proposing to roll out a program where inpatient rehab facilities must send their medical record in full to the MAC for approval prior to submitting the claim for payment. Now, this is strange in several ways. First, the stated purpose of this program is to reduce fraud. That's right, not reduce improper payments, but reduce fraud. They say it over and over again. Second, if an ERF does not send in their records prior to claim submission, then the MAC is instructed to request and review the record prior to processing the claim. No penalty at all for not doing it. Now, you'll recall with the home health prior approval program, if an agency elects not to participate, their payment is reduced by 25%. Third, if an ERF gets nine out of the first 10 approved on review, then the review process ceases with only a 5% claim spot check. Now, I would think that ERFs would hit 10 Medicare admissions pretty quickly. So it's a pretty low bar. Now, if you're interested in this or you want to comment, go to regulations.gov 
and search for CMS10765. Now, if I suggested in my comment that if an admission is approved under this process, that it be exempt from audit in the future. We've all seen how poorly Maximus does with their ERF audits, and the RACs are already approved to audit ERF admissions, so it may be a good insurance policy to keep submitting records before you file the claim. Finally, on January 1st, um, the inpatient-only list got shorter by over 300 surgeries. Um, so we have to apply the two midnight rule to all of those surgeries. And I need to clarify one point. While most of the common spine surgeries have been removed from the inpatient-only list, there are 70 surgeries that are in the 6-3-XXX range of codes. They're neurosurgery procedures that remain inpatient-only. So don't stop checking your codes when you look at these surgeries. That's it, Chuck. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Happy 2021. I have some good news to bring good tidings. I'm fairly sure that everyone listening is educated in what a preliminary injunction is and how important it can be for a healthcare provider falsely accused of credible allegations of fraud in order to lift the mandatory suspension of reimbursement. Well, finally, over the holidays, a judge found that an indication of intent is required for an accusation of credible allegations of fraud, unlike past cases in which a mere accusation results in suspension. 42 CFR 455.23 mandates that a healthcare provider's reimbursement be suspended based on credible allegations of fraud, which is a low bar. My client, an oral surgeon, had a disgruntled employee complaint and a baseless PCG audit of $6,000. He had a double threat threatening his credible allegations of fraud. We filed an injunction, and an injunction is an extraordinary legal tool that allows the judge to suspend whatever bad action the government or one of its auditors is doing. You have to prove that you have a likelihood of success on the merits, that you would suffer irreparable harm without it, that the balance of equities weighs in your favor, and that the public interest is better if the injunction is granted. I would guess that maybe 10 to 20% of requests for TROs and PIs are granted because it is a hard bar. But last week we did win for the oral surgeon and everyone can learn from his success. Uh, let me set the stage. The oral surgeon underwent an infamous PCG audit resulting in an alleged $6,000 overpayment. PCG concurrently sends this data to program integrity and one month later, without any notice, his reimbursements are suspended based on a credible allegation of fraud. I do say the credible allegation of fraud in air quotes. Concurrently, he had a disgruntled employee threatening him. Remember that the credible allegation of fraud is only an indicia of reliability. His practice comprised of 80% Medicaid. We filed the TRO, preliminary injunction and motion to stay, and the day before Christmas, we have trial. The judge ruled that the department cannot just blindly rely on an anonymous accusation that there has to be some sort of investigation. He said it's not okay to just accept accusations at face value without any sort of independent fact-checking. 
the judge created an additional burden for the department in cases of accusations of fraud that's not present in the regulation, but it is logical and reasonable to expect the department to explore accusations. The judge emphasized that fraud requires intent. He also pointed out that fraud is not defined in the regulations. He stated that in light of the large number of Medicaid beneficiaries treated by the oral surgeon, the rarity of his skills, the apparent demand for those services, the relatively small amount of money now or formerly in controversy, the lack of evidence of actual fraud, and the contrary indications, the high probability that good cause exists for not suspending his Medicaid payments, and the near certainty of irreparable harm to the oral surgeon if the relief was not granted, the TRO should be granted. Even better, the judge ordered that the provider did not have to put up a bond, which is normally required by law. By the stroke of the judge's pen, the surgeon could go back to work performing medically necessary services to Medicaid recipients, which, by the way, is rare for an oral surgeon to even accept Medicaid. So very happy with these results. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, William Dombey, Alan Fink-Sandrick, Dr. John Fogel, David Glazer, Angela Phillips, Ed Roach, and Maureen Testoni. This is Monday. It's January the 11th, and you're listening to a live 60-minute edition of Monitor Monday. Look out. Look ahead. Stand by. The last thing a patient wants after undergoing a medical emergency is a large hospital bill for services they assumed were covered by insurance. To bill patients for services that may not be covered, team members must issue the appropriate notices, either the ABN or the HINN. If those documents are not delivered within the proper time period, it could increase the risk for audits and loss of revenue. Case management experts Stephanie Daniels and Marie Steinbuck explain how to identify appropriate notice to give to patients. Join them for their exclusive Rack Monitor webcast, ABNs and HINNs Stay in Compliance During COVID-19. The program is this Thursday, January 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every morning, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, for the first broadcast of the year, we often focus on predictions, and I won't for two reasons, the first of which is at risk. Predicting is perilous. At this time last year, I wasn't even stocking up on peanut butter and graham crackers in anticipation of the pandemic. I didn't start that until the last week in January. Six weeks before the lockdown, it was still somewhat difficult to see it coming. And if you'd asked me on March 11th when the lockdown would end, I would have said in about six weeks uh, with confidence that life would be certainly back to normal by June. So at least for me, predictions are hard. But more importantly, while we were on break, Congress passed a surprise billing prohibition entitled, perhaps unsurprisingly, the No Surprises Act, which amends the public health service. The law goes into effect next to January, January 1st of 2022. Now, the law is extremely long, and I am not confident I ever understand every angle in it yet. But here is some of what I have gleaned. It applies in a few contexts, and some of the articles I've seen seem to get this wrong. I believe it applies to emergency care, air ambulance services, ASCs, and hospital services if the patient goes 
Uh, and if the uh, patient goes to either an ASC or a hospital that's in their insurance plan. In those situations, a patient can't be required to pay more in copayments or deductibles than the patient would pay had they for an in-network service. This means that for a patient, whenever they go to receive emergency room services, they'll pay an in-network rate. For scheduled hospital or ASC services, the same is true if they go to an in-network facility. And really, we're talking there about the physician component of it. So this leaves, because obviously, just to make this clear, the facility is in-network, so we're talking about the physicians at the associated in-network facility. So this leaves a big question. If the care provider charges more than the insurance company pays for in-network care, who is responsible? The answer is that the health facility and the insurer are going to need to work it out. If they're unable to work it out, there's a dispute resolution process akin to baseball arbitration. The insurance company offers the most money it's willing to pay, and the healthcare organization indicates the lowest rate it will accept. The arbitrator then must choose one of those two figures. The law applies to air ambulance services, but somewhat surprisingly, it does not apply to ground ambulances. Since patients needing a ground ambulance are generally not in a great position to bargain about price, that omission is significant. If I'm understanding the law properly, and to repeat, I am not certain I am, some physicians who are out of network can still require the patient to pay more than in-network rates as long as they obtain consent in writing from the patient before the service is provided. But there's a huge caveat, the exception that permits patient consent doesn't apply to physicians who provide emergency medicine, anesthesiology, pathology, radiology, and neonatology. Uh, and that's both the physician or if the service is provided by a non-physician practitioner. Similarly, patients can't be asked to consent for higher payments for diagnostic services, including radiology and lab. So that carves out a lot of that patient consent exception. The No Surprises Act is one of the more difficult provisions I've come across, and I bet little traps and surprises are going to be discovered in the coming months. Chuck, starting in 2021, when arbitrators are looking at disputes between insurers and out-of-network providers, the arbitrators are going to be saying to each side, hit me with your best shot and fire away, just like Pat Bentar encourages you to do. Before that, of course, we'll be all hoping to say that to our favorite vaccinator. Chuck, hoping you're hit with your best shot. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson, Byron, in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Chuck. Happy 2021, everyone, and a good Monday, all. We are less than two weeks into the new year, but the priority for healthcare organizations continues to be, wait for it, yep, the social determinants of health and mental health. The industry's hot ticket item pre-pandemic has only amplified from deepening disparities for the already vulnerable and marginalized populations, as well as growing numbers of people in need of psychosocial, economic, and other resource support. 
What industry response can we expect to see in 2021? Well, here are some predictions and some facts. Programs that leverage social informatics will be hot. These efforts to strive to achieve the holy grail of interoperability and close the loop for patients across health organizations from input to throughput, resource linkage, and follow-up. Stakeholder eyes will be on the outcomes from the Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health Beyond Hospital Program, the cross-sector collaboration geared to screen every patient for SDOH conditions, refer and connect them to community services, and provide ongoing support. Time will tell how that will work out. Programs to address the rising population impacted by homelessness and housing insufficiency. One model continues to be the Homeless Outreach Medical Services Homes Program in Dallas, the collaboration between Parkland Hospital and the Children's Health Fund that provides medical, dental, and behavioral health services to children and adults who are homeless. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Delaware gets big points for formalizing a collaboration with Find Help, formerly Aunt Bertha, that assures beneficiaries at risk of the SDOH direct access to identified resources. And that website, again, is findhelp.org. With unemployment back on the rise, programs as Care Sources Job Connect platform will expand. This initiative links members with employment by offering education and skill building programs. Food is most definitely medicine. Model programs and coalitions will rapidly expand to mitigate food insufficiency. Rising numbers of food pharmacies and hospitals will continue to emerge based on the Geisinger model. Payers will step up as the Centene subsidiaries have in their partnering efforts with community-based organizations that provide access to food and other essential supplies across the states. Efforts to close racial and cultural gaps from maternal mortality are growing across rural and urban communities. Several winners of the AHRQ grants focused on rural and postpartum mental health. $50,000 cross-sectional innovation prizes went to St. Peter's Health in Helena, uh, Montana for maternal mental health programs, identifying at-risk individuals and connecting women to resources and appropriate early care in pregnancy, and PAC Health in Birmingham, Alabama for a digital health coaching program to address postpartum depression. $25,000 in prizes went to the Massachusetts Child Psychiatry Access Program for moms Flathead County, Montana's Postpartum Resource Group, and Art Heal's Wellness Workshops for Postpartum Women in Oregon. Mergers, acquisitions, and collaborations that address what I refer to as the holistic health triad for vulnerable populations will continue to grow. These efforts provide comprehensive wraparound care for physical and mental health, plus psychosocial circumstances. On the Centene front, their planned acquisition of Magellan Health is aligned with this goal, to support their very marginalized beneficiaries with complex chronic conditions through integration of physical and mental health care. All of the links for these stories will appear in my upcoming article this week for Rack Monitor. Now, our first Monitor Monday survey of 2021 asks, what is your organization's most pressing SDOH and MH priority for this year? A, housing, B, food, C, population-based care, such as maternal mortality or race or other chronic conditions, expansion of behavioral health, or you just are not sure. Well, we'll find out in a bit. Back to you, Chuck.
Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant and author, Alan Fink Sandwich. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Salus. Salus is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain health care claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thanks, Chuck. Although the nation's capital is facing a, a tremendous amount of complex issues this week, I'm going to concentrate on health care legislation that hospitals and providers have to focus on in 2021. First, the hospital transparency rule took effect last week. The rule, as most of you know, requires hospitals to disclose the prices it charges for shoppable items and services, including the negotiated rates it charges specific payers for those services. Most recently, the American Hospital Association led a last-ditch effort to stop the rule from taking effect with an emergency stay. But just a few days before the new year, a federal appeals court decided that the rule was going forward. In the past week, the AHA has urged both the Trump and the Biden administrations to exercise enforcement discretion on the rule, which in practice would push the effective date back, noting that there's a post-holiday surge in the pandemic and a need to effectively distribute the vaccine. Uh, No word yet from either administration on a delay, but we'll keep you posted. Next, a few days after Christmas, the longest, longest legislation in U.S. history, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, 2021 was signed into law, clocking in at over 5,500 pages. As most of you are aware, the Appropriations Act included government funding that kept the government open, the $900 billion COVID relief package. The Appropriations Act also included the No Surprises Act, as Dr. Glazer talked about it, a sweeping law that prohibits surprise balance billing across the country as well as it adds new transparency requirements for hospitals and requirements for provider directories. We heard Dr. Glazer talk about the certain situations in which the prohibition on balance billing applies. For my part, I'll talk briefly about the reimbursement and settlement provisions in the law between the payer and the provider. Over the next few weeks, we'll talk more about the arbitration process and some burdensome hospital transparency requirements that are also included in the act. First, unlike state laws, the No Surprises Act applies to both self-funded and fully funded patients. However, if there is a state law where there is a balance billing prohibition, the payer should pay the provider in accordance with that state law. That is, where there are state laws with balance billing reimbursement provisions, the federal No Surprises Act would not apply. The state law would apply, at least with regard to fully insured patients. Second, Unlike previous surprise balance billing legislation that we've seen proposed in Congress over the last two and a half years, the No Surprises Act has no reimbursement benchmark. The No Surprises Act intends that the payer and the provider will work out an appropriate reimbursement by themselves through a negotiation and settlement process. That negotiation settlement process outlined in the law starts when a payer sends an initial payment for the submitted claim. If within 30 days the provider does nothing, then the provider is presumed to accept that initial payment. If the provider disagrees with the initial payment, they can initiate what the Act calls an open negotiation process with the payer. This open negotiation process lasts an additional 30 days and, again, includes just the payer and the provider. So if there is no settlement between the provider and the payer during this open negotiation period, 
the provider can then initiate an independent dispute resolution process with a third-party arbitrator. We'll touch on that process maybe a bit more next week. Although HHS will be going through rulemaking this year to clarify many of the Act's proposals, like Dr. Glazer said, the effective date for the provider requirements is in less than a year, January 1st, 2022. So looking forward to 2021, Chuck, hospitals and providers have some heavy lifts when it comes to implementing legislation with transparency rules already in effect, certain effective dates for the interoperability coming due, and a balanced billing act to prepare for for 2021. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Here now with the Monitor Monday COVID-19 report is Dr. John Fogel. Good morning, Dr. Fogel. Good morning, Chuck. Last evening, just before midnight, I finished my seventh straight day of work in the alternate site COVID-19 field hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. Rhode Island, our smallest state, has been particularly hit hard. It's number one in cases per capita and has COVID-19 fatality rates among the highest in the country. Field hospitals like the one I worked in this past week are now opening throughout the United States in an effort to stem the latest surge of patients. They're designed to help decompress grossly overcrowded emergency departments and hospitals, and we will need them. January is going to shatter our previous record of cases and fatalities from COVID-19. Think we are seeing a post-Christmas spike in hospitalized patients? That's to come. Every single patient I took care of over the past seven days got infected just before Christmas. Lost in the news about the political chaos of this past week was the news that it was the deadliest week in the pandemic so far. The United States surpassed 4,000 COVID-19 deaths in a single day last Thursday, and our health system is failing those who are sick. There's not enough ICU capacity. There are equipment shortages. L.A. County, where one in five people are testing positive for the coronavirus, is running out of small, portable oxygen tanks. Even PPE is once again in limited supply. Our biggest problem in addressing the surge of COVID-19 patients? We are running out of nurses. All of these shortages are forcing discussions about how to ration limited equipment and care as our healthcare system struggles to keep its head above the coronavirus tidal wave. Also hiding in the chaos of this past week was the alarming news about different mutant COVID-19 strains in the UK and South Africa, with the former already having reached our shores and the latter certain to do so. The UK strain appears to be more contagious while there are fears that the recently developed vaccines won't protect, provide full protection for the South African variant. The availability of vaccines are reasons for optimism. Frontline workers like me and nursing home patients started receiving either the highly effective two-dose Pfizer or Moderna vaccines a month ago. Well, there are significant challenges ahead. A major challenge is a logistical one getting the vaccines from pharmaceutical companies into the arms of U.S. citizens. Distribution and cold storage issues have delayed the speed of vaccination so far. We should be able to iron out those kinks. The other major challenge, the public relations one, will be even harder. Herd immunity, which requires at least 70 to 80 percent of the population to get vaccinated, that seems an insurmountable task given the widespread disinformation, conspiracy theories, 
COVID denial and anti-vaxxer sentiment in our country. I worked with some nurses this past week who have refused to get vaccinated. Overcoming this will require an intense and well-resourced public education campaign. Equally important will be educating those who do get vaccinated about what the vaccine can and can't do. Both vaccines have been proven to effectively prevent an individual from getting sick with COVID-19. However, there is a significant probability that a vaccinated individual could still be an asymptomatic carrier and transmit the virus for an undetermined period of time. We will understand this better in the months ahead. So vaccinated individuals will still have to continue to follow public health recommendations, wear a mask, avoid crowds, maintain social distancing of at least six feet, and practice good hand hygiene. And our final public relations challenge will be ongoing because we don't know how long these vaccines will protect us. It's quite possible that COVID-19 will never completely disappear as it continues to mutate. All viruses can mutate, and history shows that they usually evolve into more contagious yet less severe forms. We can only hope that COVID-19 follows a similar path. Perhaps an annual COVID vaccination, along with a flu shot, will be part of our future. There's still so much we don't know yet. In the meantime, hunker down for what is likely to be a very deadly winter. Vaccination, combined with strictly adhering to these public health measures, is still our only solution to the public health crisis we are currently in, and our only ticket out of this pandemic. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Fogel. That was Dr. John Fogel. Dr. Fogel is a frontline physician caring for COVID-19 patients at Rhode Island's Alternative Site Field Hospital as a member of Brown University's Emergency Medicine Program. The nation's 340B drug program is under siege again. To explain the latest tussle, here is the president and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. And good morning, Maureen, and welcome back. And what's going on here and what do we need to know? Thanks, Chuck, and Happy New Year. It's great to be back with you and your team. As most people were preparing for New Year's Eve, hospitals and others involved in 340B got a very pleasant surprise. On December 30th, the General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services issued what's called an advisory opinion in a dispute between hospitals and a small group of very large drug companies. Now, the original dispute started in July when drug manufacturer Lilly unilaterally decided to refuse to offer 340B discounts for drugs purchased by hospitals and dispensed in community pharmacies that they contract with. Their action also applied to community health centers and clinics that serve large numbers of patients living with low low incomes and those living in isolated rural communities. Over the following months, five other manufacturers did the same. When this first began, we objected as strongly as possible, saying this was a direct violation of the 340B statute written by Congress. We called on HHS to stop the manufacturers before it hurt patients and communities. But HHS said it didn't have the authority to enforce the rules. But by the end of the year, six drug companies were either refusing to offer 340B discounts or threatening to do so. They are Eli Lilly, Merck, Novo Nordisk, Fantasy, United Therapeutics, and AstraZeneca. In mid-December, we got together with five other national organizations representing hospitals and pharmacists and three 340B hospitals and filed a lawsuit in federal court asking the judge to order HHS to enforce the 340B law and stop these harmful actions. The first hearing on, on that suit is scheduled for February 13th. 
But back to New Year's, the New Year's Eve surprise. In his new advisory opinion, the HHS General Counsel, Robert Charo, very clearly and strongly agreed with our legal point of view and said the manufacturers were in violation of the law. Let me quote to you from his opinion. To the extent contract pharmacies are acting as agents of a covered entity, a drug manufacturer in the 340B program is obligated to deliver its covered outpatient drugs to those contract pharmacies and to charge the covered entity no more than the 340B ceiling price for those drugs. He went further and dismissed the drug company's claims that the use of contract pharmacies is not authorized by Congress noting that they, contract pharmacies have been in place since at least 1996. His opinion soundly rejected the arguments made by the drug companies, and he sided with the safety net providers. As you can imagine, this was very welcome news. But the fight isn't over. This advisory opinion, while powerful, is not legally binding. And sure enough, a few days after it was issued, several of the drug companies said they disagreed with the advisory opinion, and none of the companies have announced that they will discontinue their restrictive policies so far. We're disappointed, but frankly, not surprised. The next steps are critical. We have called on the manufacturers to stop denying discounts and repay covered entities. We will also continue our lawsuit until HHS takes action to require manufacturers to cease and desist and repay the discounts owed. We also want the government to refer these cases to the Office of the Inspector General, or the OIG. Under a 2010 law, the OIG has the authority to levy fines on any manufacturer that knowingly and intentionally overcharges 340B hospitals. We hope HHS can act before the end of the Trump administration, but in case they don't, we've already reached out to the transition team for President-elect Biden to inform them about this issue. We took a giant step ahead on December 30th. I'm hopeful that we will resolve this dispute quickly so that 340B hospitals can focus on their patients, not on the actions of drug companies. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Maureen. That was the president and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Thanks again, Maureen. How is COVID-19 impacting home care and hospice services? We'll have the details when William Dombey joins us from Washington. And later in the broadcast, Angie Phillips reports on the resumption of auditing of IRF facilities by the RACs. Those stories are more coming your way in 60 seconds. This is Monitor Monday. It's a broadcast service of RAC Monitor. Stand by. Every day is likely to be an audit day in 2021. That means you need to be aware that auditing entities, governmental and commercial, are ramping up their activities, focusing on potential errors made by hospitals, laboratories, nursing homes, and physicians, especially during the pandemic. While you may not know precisely what audits are likely to land at your facility on any given day, take comfort in knowing that a subscription to the RAC Monitor Compliance webcast portal will give you crucially important education on the most relevant audit and compliance risks for 2021. It's the year of the audit, so prepare now. Subscribe to the RAC Monitor Compliance Webcast Portal. Do it today. For more information, visit the portal page at RAC University. Here in the United States, there are more than 33,000 home care and hospice organizations adding up that massive enterprise is our next guest, William Dombey. He's the association's president. And good morning, Bill. Welcome back. So what's on the horizon for your members in 2021? Uh, good morning, Chuck, and welcome everybody to the new year. Uh, we look back at 2020 to start with and with some great pride to see how home care and hospice truly stepped up to the front lines, caring for COVID-19 patients, as well as their 12 million other patients that they normally see in a given year. 
We've seen the result of that incredible service increase the demand for care in recent months to a point where there is concern about having to ration availability due to staff shortages, staff who themselves may have become infected with COVID-19. But what I wanted to walk you through today is a bit of our, our radar. What do we see for 2021 in our lookout, look ahead focus? We start with some of the areas that are business as usual, starting with the Medicare payment system for both home health and hospice services. We are actually looking at the payment model for home health, otherwise known as PDGM, as potentially owing the home health care community some money from 2020. The new system was required to be budget neutral in each and every one of its years, and we believe it shortchanged it because of something known as behavioral adjustments. So looking for a rollback of that behavioral adjustment. We're also looking at the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission recommendations on both home health and hospice. The one that stands out the most is the recommendation of reducing the annual aggregate cap for hospice services. We have conducted a fairly in-depth research analysis concluding that if the MedPAC recommendation is accepted, it will trigger all across the board discrimination against individuals with non-cancer diagnoses because it, those patients tend to have a longer hospice stay due to the unpredictability of their lifespan. So very much uh, an issue in our advocacy for 2021. And we are also seeing the re-rise of discussions regarding a unified post-acute care payment model, nicknamed the UPAC, uh, with conversations with both MedPAC and the Department of Health and Human Services. They're looking to restart uh, the development of that model for a report to Congress with a recommended model for 2022. And then while the hospitals are dealing with surprise billing, the home health community was hit with a bit of a surprise, not a full surprise, but a bit of a surprise on Friday when the Department of Health and Human Services announced it was going to expand the home health value-based purchasing program. The details at this point are missing, but it is possible we may see an actual nationwide expansion of that program. Uh, it is one of the few value-based purchasing programs that actually shows some fairly significant success driven primarily by reducing hospital admissions and readmissions to high quality home health services. Beyond that, because of the great success of care in the home in 2020 through COVID-19, we are looking at it as a year of opportunity, starting with the new administration coming in on a healthcare platform that includes a $755 billion program for the expansion of home and community-based services. Uh, we'll see how the new administration is able to handle that since its hands are absolutely full at this point with COVID-19. But in addition, we'll be watching the unveiling of the expanded hospital at home program. Uh, we in the industry have our own program designed to modify, reform the Medicare program to create a choose home alternative to the skilled nursing facility benefit under Medicare. We're looking also at an expansion of the opportunities to provide telehealth as part of the home health and hospice benefit, including, unlike 2020, actual reimbursement for those services. And finally, you know, we're looking at an expansion in some sorts, people will call it expansion, but reality is 
that it is just an application of the longstanding Medicare home health benefit to cover palliative care in the home health setting, something which is well overdue, but something also which is well within the scope of that longstanding home health benefit. So Chuck, thanks for the opportunity to join you here today. Uh, we do see home health care and hospice services has been put in a position of great increase in awareness and recognition of how deep and wide it goes as a service, particularly with the COVID-19 patients. At the moment, our estimation is that we are seeing tens of thousands of patients actively infected with COVID-19 in the care of home care providers of services with high degrees of infection control and high quality services. So there is somewhat of a silver lining in COVID-19 experience last year, and that was the recognition of how valuable, how important care in the home can be, which makes it one of the central focuses for 2021 in terms of healthcare policy. So again, Chuck, thanks so much for the opportunity to join you today and look forward to many, many more opportunities in the future. Thanks, Bill, very much. That was the president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice, William Dombey. And coming up next is the surprising results of today's Monitor Money listener survey. COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus, has brought about a tangle of regulatory waivers and an inordinate amount of rule changes. The pandemic has wreaked havoc on hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. That's created widespread confusion, especially among those healthcare professionals being called upon to conduct regulatory research during the public health emergency. With very little light at the end of the tunnel of confusion, nationally respected healthcare attorney David Glazer's webcast focuses on the most important changes affecting healthcare providers. He will untangle the plethora of new rules governing telemedicine, a topic already in the crosshairs of government and commercial auditors. This timely, important webcast is now available on demand. Register at the Rack University Bookstore to download. And now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. Well, we have record response for our first Monitor Monday survey of the year. What is your organization's most pressing SDOH and MH? For those of you that were unsure, it's mental health priority for this year. Close to 7% stuck with housing, which was the top SDOH pre-pandemic. 3% went with food. But 16%, and that's where we start to see the numbers rise, went with population-based care related to the intersection of race and chronic illness, maternal mortality, heart failure. The surprise to many, though not to me, was the dramatic expansion of behavioral health, with 18% of our listeners looking at that as their main focus, and about 57% do not know and whether those are folks that who may be in roles where they're not privy to that information or organizations that are still defining those priorities. Everybody's stepping up and we will continue to follow this story over the year. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Ellen. The RACs have resumed reviewing inpatient rehabilitation facilities, but that's not all. 
There appear to be problems with using mid-level practitioners, plus there's COVID-19, and to explain these challenges facing the IRF industry, here's Angie Phillips. Good morning, Angie. Good morning. Thanks, Chuck, and best wishes for a significantly improved 2021 for all of our listeners. I think we all need it. As we've already been hearing this morning, there's a lot that providers will be dealing with in the coming months. Recovery audits have resumed for EARTHS, as they have for other venues. And while the number of charts requested for EARTHS is very small, sometimes only one record, the impact can be significant. In spite of prescribed limits to the number of charts that can be requested in any 45-day cycle and an annual limit of half of 1% of records, those limits may be adjusted upward based on low compliance rates. While all EARTHS need to be prepared for these requests, small providers particularly have a greater risk for high rates of noncompliance due to the sample size and need to be certain they are responding promptly to these requests and appealing denials if they occur. This is not an area to be complacent. As Dr. Fogel's very good report highlights, COVID continues um, to be very significant and it has an impact in all areas of practice. It has an equal impact on EARTHS in terms of how we interface with the healthcare delivery system. One of my colleagues laments the current situation as all COVID every day, and that may well be a fair assessment with no real end in sight. We have seen impacts on staffing, staff burnout, bed capacity, and throughput, and expect those issues to continue. As we've already heard, the PHE has been extended until late April, and this means that the blanket waivers that impact providers remain intact through that time. Those most pertinent to EARTHS allow for lower intensity of therapy services during the PHE and allow for physicians to provide the required face-to-face -face visits related to rehab management via telehealth. Providers may continue to use these waivers through the time. Additionally, EARTHs continue to have the ability to utilize EARTH beds for acute patients and acute beds for EARTH cases when necessary to meet the surge demand. This is important. The waivers provide some relief for EARTHs as they address this shift in EARTH volumes that results from fluctuations in acute care and the need for post-rehabilitation um, or post-COVID rehabilitation for patients with significant disability. In other words, EARTHs should continue to explore the opportunity to provide specialized post-COVID rehabilitation services as part of the solution to moving patients from acute through the healthcare continuum and to home. This will help provide much-needed acute beds to address patient surge. Focused COVID rehab programs have shown to be big wins on all fronts. Patients get much-needed care focused on functional recovery and return to home. Earths maintain volume, and most importantly in these crisis times, acute organizations are able to manage throughput and open acute beds. Of interest to those of you who utilize mid-level practitioners in care delivery, we are now seeing organizations struggle with monitoring the use of mid-level practitioners to provide the required face-to-face -face visits that demonstrate rehab physician management of the earth patient. The regulation, which was effective October 1, allows for one mid-level visit to be counted as a face-to-face -face visit in weeks two and later in the earth stay. During week one, the visits must be completed by the rehabilitation physician. 
In audits for our clients, we've seen issues both with assuring that the appropriate number of face-to-face visits are done by the appropriate provider, as well as difficulties assuring that the organization has developed policies and practices to assure mid-level practitioners have the appropriate training and experience to manage these patients. And finally, there is a need to be watching out for what's coming down the road. Social determinants of health will be important in rehab as well as other changes in quality monitoring. We need to address care transitions, particularly in terms of when is the appropriate time to move patients from acute to post-acute to home and other pending regulatory changes like the prior payment approval that uh, Ron talked about earlier are going to be significant for us. With that, ERS need to continue to hone their skills of vigilance, persistence, and resilience. It's going to be another interesting year. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was one of the nation's foremost authorities on inpatient rehabilitation facility services, Angela Phillips. Angie is the president of Image and Associates. Here's a question for you. Should uh, governmental and third-party auditors be certified? We asked that question to Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter Ed Roach. Ed, what's your reaction to that question? Well, Chuck, uh, have you ever been in a Medicare hearing and realized the person testifying for the auditor does not understand what they're talking about? Recently, I was in such a hearing. A number of claims filed by my client had been rejected because of poor documentation. Now, why was that? The auditor testified the physician had failed to document the parts of the body involved. But this was not true. Each of the patient notes had detailed each muscle group involved. What was the problem? It soon became clear the auditor did not know how to read the abbreviations in the patient notes. Now, of course, one could argue that if a physician were using some special code in their documentation, this might raise eyebrows. But that wasn't the case here. In fact, each of the abbreviations used was a standard accepted in this particular area of practice. Any person even remotely familiar with this specialty knows these abbreviations, and all physicians in this area of practice use them. So what was the problem? What was going on? Why was the auditor unable to read and understand the medical documentation they were rejecting? In my view, it is a matter of certification. The auditor was not adequately trained to read the documentation. As a consequence, they were not qualified to perform the audit, and they certainly were not qualified to testify against this provider in a Medicare hearing when the issue on the table was poor documentation. In the medical world, certification is the universal currency of credibility. Before they are allowed to treat patients, doctors go through years of training. But supporting the doctors is an ocean of persons with certifications. In one list from CMS, I counted 116 certifications. In diagnostics, we find separate certifications in audiology, x-ray technicians, sonograms, vascular, electro-neurodiagnostic technology, radiation health technology, radiation safety, and so on. In the treatment area, we find certifications in massage, anesthesia, basic life support, cardiovascular, paramedics, cytogenics, dental assistance, dental radiations, dialysis, EMT, exercise kinesiology, CPR, phlebotomy, geriatric management, histologist, herbology, oral surgery, speech therapy, naturopathy, and so on. In health administration, there are even more. Health services management, 
coding, health informatics, billing, insurance coding, hospital case management, medical administration, OSHA safety certification, clinical data management, and more. All are separate certificates. There is even a certification in PET CPR. But what about the auditors? To obtain a auditing certification in physician practice management, one needs to take a 200-question exam for $399. The book to prepare is 118 pages long and costs $169. Certification in medical documentation is 150 questions with another short paperback to study. An undergraduate degree in Texas requires 120 credits. Auditors require 60. A medical necessity course is 60 minutes long and costs $49. In the United States, we may have a horrible mismatch between the auditors and the providers being audited. It begs the question about whether there should be a national standard for certification of auditors. We can think about certifying the certifiers. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Modern Investigator Reporter Ed Roach calling in from New York. And now it's time for our town hall segment, and here's David Glazer. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. You bet, Chuck. So the first one, first question is for you, Dr. Hirsch. So let's say you're mad at a sniff because they've been refusing your transfers. Can you totally remove that sniff from the list of sniffs that you're required to give patients as part of your discharge planning? No, you can't. You have to give them a list of every sniff in the geographic area where, where they choose to go. Now, how you sort that list is up to you and whether you, you know, put your favorites near the top and you emphasize their excellent care, that's okay. You can't call them preferred, but you can sort them any way you want. I guess we'll stick with you, Dr. Hirsch. So if you're billing a Medicaid payer, can the hospital decide to bill an observation service if the doctor has ordered inpatient care? I'm presuming this question is about a case where you have an admission that the payer does not want to pay as inpatient, but they're allowing you to bill it for outpatient. Now, if they tell you that you can go ahead and bill observation, I think you can bill observation hours even if you don't have an order for it because the payer is the one telling you to do it. With Medicare, you cannot do that. If you don't have an OBS order, you can't bill for OBS hours. I will uh, just add, remember that Medicaid is a state program. I think people often get confused on sort of the weird, Medicaid is on some level a federal program. There is federal funding, but it's implemented and administered by the states. And so every state's going to have its own answer to all Medicaid questions. And then many states have gone to managed Medicaid, which just like Medicare Advantage changes things entirely because then in many ways, it's actually a private contract because the state has delegated a lot of its authority to those contracts. Ms. Phillips, I got a question for you. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between Ron's discussion of prepayment review that we've been hearing about from the OIG and the MedPAC prior authorization requirements? Yeah, there are actually two different proposals. MedPAC and OIG for years have been saying that we need a prior off for Medicare patients going into an ERF. And so that would be very similar to what we currently see with managed care, Medicare managed care, and other managed care policies where if a patient's in the acute setting, they're referred to 
uh, inpatient rehabilitation, that you have to have a prior authorization. So those are the proposals over the last four or five years that we have persistently been hearing from from OIG and MedPAC. Um, Ron, correct me if I'm wrong, but this new proposal that you discussed this morning is really a prepayment review. It's sort of a test to say, okay, before we pay a certain number of claims, we want to see the whole chart. So it's similar to what we're seeing with um, Targeted Prove and Educate, where it's a prepayment review. And if you're a good kid, then you get off probation and you start getting paid again. So they're there are two different philosophies. One is we approve the admission, we have to approve the admission before you come in, and the other is, okay, you treat the patient, you send the bill, and now stop, we're going to review the case to see if we're going to pay it. Thank you so much, Angie. So the next Good. question is one I am fond of dealing with because I had it wrong initially. So is there a guarantee that the public health emergency lasts until April? And the answer to that is a difficult to understand no. Um, when the public health emergency is extended for 90 days, that doesn't guarantee it will last 90 days. I think there is some comfort that the government recognizes that an abrupt end is unfair to everyone, and that's a big part of why many of the changes to the uh, fee schedule said that waivers are going to remain in place through the end of December 31st in whatever year the public health emergency ends, but that is not true of all of the waivers. And the the secretary can end the public health emergency without warning. I don't think they'll do that because I think everyone recognizes this problem, but it's a, that risk exists. Do you have time for one more, Chuck? You know what I'd like you to do? I'd like you to recognize the uh, comment from Bruce about Dr. Fogel's segment. I think that that's an excellent idea. Bruce says that we should tell Dr. Fogel that was an excellent summary of the current status, and we should all hang in there and Godspeed. And I would say that's a message I think we can all be behind. Thanks, David, very much. And on that very positive and upbeat note, we're going to say that this is a wrap for the 60-minute live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, William Dombey, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, Dr. John Fogel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Angie Phillips, Ed Roach, and, of course, Maureen Testoni. And remember, when we're not on the air live, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. Listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Send us a review. And one last thing before we go, be sure to wear your mask, wash your hands, and maintain social distancing. COVID-19 is dangerous, and it's killing us. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting from Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Take care and be safe, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.